Hello, this is Mike, and welcome to another episode of Urban Legends and Mythology. Today, we are discussing an actual real historical figure. This guy did exist, and I will go deeply into the details of his life. However, he has become a legendary figure on par with some of America's own legendary outlaws and figures of our Old West. And for this story, we're actually traveling to Australia in the 1860s, right around the same time of all these great characters of the American West, so this guy would be contemporary with the likes of the legendary Jesse James or the infamous Billy the Kid. However, this guy lives in Australia. This man has become a cultural icon. In fact, he's such a popular cultural icon that more biographies of him have been written than any other Australian. And stories of his exploits continue to divide opinions on him today. Some people just see him as a murderous villain. Other people see him as a folk hero in the same light as Robin Hood, but I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's take a drink of some delicious Voodoo Ranger IPA. Sorry, I don't have any Australian beer, and I refuse to drink Foster's because that's not real beer. That's like the Bud Light of Australia. It tastes like piss, but this is the story of the infamous Ned Kelly. So in order to understand who Ned Kelly was, I guess it's appropriate to first look into his background and who his family was and why they even came to Australia in the first place. So I'm actually going to start with Ned Kelly's father. Now his name was John Kelly and he was also known by the nickname or moniker Red. And he was actually born in 1820 in Ireland. Now at the age of 21 he was found guilty of stealing two pigs and he was sentenced to transportation. Now transportation at this time kind of fulfilled two different roles and goals that the British Empire had. You see the British Empire was expanding and they needed colonists to go to these new regions, these new worlds, and Australia was one of these new worlds. We couldn't necessarily transport our criminals to America anymore because of something called the Revolutionary War. And to help build these colonies and alleviate a growing problem of overcrowding prisons in the home aisles, people were sentenced to transportation. They would go, they would do hard labor in these colonies, and it was believed that once their prison sentence was up and they paid their debt to society, they would then settle in these new colonies and become the new colonists. And to be honest, it mostly worked. A lot of people who were sent to these penal colonies rarely ever returned to England or Ireland, and they would go on to fulfill the role of populating these new colonies. You know, basically ignoring the fact that there were already indigenous people living in these colonies around the world. But I digress. So, John Kelly, he was transported on the prison ship Prince regent and arrived at Hobart Town in Van Diemen's Land, which is now Hobart in Tasmania, on January 2nd, 1842. Now, he would finish his sentence in January of 1848, and after he finished his sentence, he was free to move anywhere he wanted to, so he moved to the colony of Victoria, where he found work on a farm of a man named James Quinn as a bush carpenter. So, he's working for this guy, James Quinn, on his farm as a carpenter, and on November 18th, 1850, he marries his employer's daughter, an 18-year-old woman named Ellen Quinn. The couple then shift their focus to digging for gold, and they actually eventually go on to earn enough to buy a small freehold just north of Melbourne. And for those who don't know, a freehold is basically a piece of property, a piece of land, a farm to settle down on, for example. Now, 
Now, Red and his wife, they go on to have something like eight children, and Ned, Edward, he was actually his parents' third child. Now, it's not exactly known when his birth date was. A lot of people believe it was around December of 1854. So now Ned, he's growing up with his family. However, the Kelly family isn't really prospering, and their father begins drinking very heavily. And by 1864, they leave this freehold, and they settle near Avenel, it's a place near Seymour. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know a whole lot about Australian geography. I kind of have a general rough idea, but I am just going off of my general notes, so bear with me. Now, as a boy, Ned Kelly actually obtained a basic schooling, and he became familiar with the bush. And in Avenel, it's said that he actually risked his life to save another boy from drowning in Hughes Creek. And as thanks for this, the family actually presented him with this, like, green and gold sash, which he wore for the rest of his life. He was actually wearing it under his armor when he was in his final stand. We'll get to that later. However, things still aren't going very well for the Kelly family. Red, at this time, he's become an incorrigible alcoholic, and they're constantly on the brink of poverty. And in 1865, Red was actually convicted in relation to the theft of a calf and sentenced to a fine of either 25 pounds or six months of hard labor. Now, it's not known how, but it's believed that they were somehow able to come up with the 25 pounds in order to pay the fine because there's no record of him actually being transported to any jail and performing six months of hard labor. And to be honest, when you're desperate and on the brink of poverty, you find a way to raise that money when you have to. And basically after this, the Kelly family would continue to have run-ins with the law. Uh, in 1866, Red was fined again for being drunk and disorderly, most likely in public. And on December 27th, 1866, he would die from his alcoholism, most likely something like cirrhosis of the liver or something like that. Probably the same thing that's going to kill me one day. So the next year after his father's death, the family moves to Greta in northeastern Victoria. It was close to his father's former employer and some extended family and whatnot. And they leased an 88-acre plot of land which they would use to farm. However, the farm was not very successful. It wasn't really great land for farming. So it's believed that they were supplementing their income by selling illegal alcohol. And it was believed that Ellen was supplementing her income by offering accommodation to travelers. And that is in quotations, so I don't think that accommodation was just a place to sleep for the night. I think it was other kinds of accommodation, if you catch my drift. Because we all know that the world's oldest profession would garner a little more income. Now, while there are no actual accounts or records of that happening, it's not outside the realm of possibility, especially when you're on the brink of poverty. So, it's 1869, and Ned Kelly is 14 years old, and he meets an Irish-born guy by the name of Harry Power. It's an alias of his actual name, Henry Johnson. But for the sake of the story, we call him Harry Power. Now, he was a transported convict who turned to bush ranging in northeastern Victoria after escaping Melbourne's Pentridge Prison. And this was common at the time. A lot of people who would escape these prisons in Australia would go to the outback, and they would become bush rangers, and that's what they would become famous for until they were eventually killed or captured again or whatever. To be honest, a lot of these bush rangers would end up being recaptured, sent back to jail, probably executed if later if they didn't die in the bush. However, Powers, he kind of takes on Ned Kelly as kind of a protege. He teaches him everything he knows about being a bush ranger. And the Kellys and some extended families and extended friends become part of Powers' network of sympathizers who provides him with lodging, who lies to the police for him, and so on and so forth. 
forth. And a lot of these bush rangers, just like the American outlaws of the Wild West, they always had these families and these sympathizers who kind of covered for them whenever the police came searching for them. Because a lot of these people would be seen as heroes and inspirations by the local people of the day because they were giving the middle finger to the authority and telling the system to go screw itself. And to be honest, anybody who does that is gonna have a fan base. Especially if that guy portrays himself as sticking up for the little man, sticking up for the everyman. So in 1869, Harry Power and his new protege, Ned Kelly, they attempt to steal horses from the property of a squatter named John Rowe. And even though squatters were considered people who didn't legally own property in the eyes of the state, they were given specific rights if they went to this abandoned piece of property and started improving it. And they were usually in contention with freeholders who actually, you know, would like work and buy their little piece of land. But I'm off on a tangent. So the reason they were going to steal these horses was because they had planned to rob the Woods Point Mansfield Gold Escort, but they're forced to abandon this theft because Roe, he comes out of the woodwork and he basically fires a shotgun at them. So they run back into the bush, abandon the plan, and Ned Kelly actually breaks off his association with his mentor for a while after this. Probably because, you know, he's 14 and this is his first brush with any kind of criminal activity and it's probably the first time he's ever been shot at. However, Kelly's first real brush with the law occurs in mid-October of 1869, a few months later, and it was over an altercation between him and this Chinese pig and fowl dealer from Morsus Creek named, really? This is his name? Are you fucking kidding me? His name is Afuk. Ah the dude's name was Afuk. Ah Okay, so according to Afuk, as he passed the Kelly family home, Ned came out brandishing a long stick and declared himself to be a bushranger and robbed him of 10 shillings. However, Kelly gave evidence in court that Afuk had abused his sister Annie in a dispute over Fook's request for a drink of water. Fook then beat Ned with a stick after he came to his sister's defense. Now Annie and two other family members corroborated Ned's story and and the charges were dismissed against him. But as we know with a lot of these issues and cases and stuff like this, the truth is always somewhere in between. So we'll probably never really know what happened during this incident. However, the charges were dismissed and in 1870, Kelly actually reconciles with Tower. And in March of 1870 and over the subsequent month, the pair commit in a series of armed robberies. Now the police knew that it was Power committing these robberies. However, they weren't able to identify his younger yet. It wasn't until later when the press actually confirmed it to be Ned Kelly as his young accomplice. So this puts the police on the trail of Ned Kelly. And a few days after he was named, he was tracked down and he was confined to Beechworth Goal or Beechworth Prison. Now when Ned Kelly arrives at court, he is faced with three counts of armed robbery. Now he does beat the first two counts because the witnesses were unable to verify that it was him who was the accomplice in these armed robberies. However, on the third charge, even though the witnesses weren't able to positively identify him, that charge does end up sticking, however, because no real evidence was presented in court to convict him, he was subsequently let out of jail after a month. They didn't really have anything to hold him on. Other than really conjecture and circumstantial evidence, he looked like the description of the guy who was the accomplice. So, meanwhile, while this is going on, Power, he's still out there, and he often camped 
camped at Glenmore Station, which was a large property owned by Kelly's maternal grandfather, James Quinn, from the beginning of our story. And in June of 1870, while he was resting in this, like, mountainside bark shelter that overlooked the property, he was captured by a police search party. And that led to this rumor as to whether or not Kelly informed on him. Now, Kelly, he always denied the accusation that he informed on him. However, it wasn't confirmed until it was found out that it was actually one of his uncles, a man named Jack Lloyd, who received 500 pounds in exchange for his assistance. However, Kelly had also given information which led to Powers' capture, and it's possible that the charges against him were dropped because he had assisted in this capture. And that charge was probably that third charge that was against him that was going to stick, but then turned out to have no evidence. And to his dying day, Power always believed that Ned was the one who informed on him in order to get off on that little charge that he was up against. So later in that same year, October 1870, a hawker by the name of Jeremiah McCormick accused one of Kelly's friends, a man named Ben Gold, of stealing a horse. Now we gotta remember this is the 1870s and stealing a horse at this time is the equivalent to stealing a car today. So keep that in mind, horse theft is the equivalent of Grand Theft Auto. So Gould, naturally being offended of this accusation, he actually writes this really indecent note to McCormick's wife, and he wraps it in calves' testicles and sends it to her. Now, Kelly, he's a friend of Gould's, he actually gives the note to one of his cousins to give to this woman, and that's kind of where his involvement in all of this comes in. Because later that same day, McCormick, he would confront Kelly, and they would start some fight, and Kelly would punch him right in the nose, causing him to fall down. McCormick starts screaming assault, assault, you just assaulted me, blah blah blah, and Kelly is eventually sentenced to three months of hard labor. Well, actually it was six months. He was sentenced to three months on hard labor for the assault charge, and three months of hard labor for sending the note that had the calf balls in it, so I don't really get that, but whatever. So Kelly is sent to Beechworth Goal, and on 27 March 1871, he's released five weeks early, probably for good behavior. Behavior. So it's literally three weeks after Kelly gets out of jail and this horsebreaker by the name of Isaiah Wright, he arrives in town to see his friend Alex Gunn, who's a Scottish miner who had married Kelly's older sister. Now Wright was riding a chestnut mare which he had quote borrowed without telling the owner. This owner happened to be the postmaster of Mansfield. Now Kelly had claimed that he was unaware that this horse did not belong to Wright, which to be honest was probably true. Now, according to Kelly's side of the story, what happened was later that night, the mare went missing and his friend, Alex Gunn, lent Wright one of his own horses, promising that if he found the mare, he would keep it until Wright returned. Now, Kelly said that as soon as Wright had departed, the mare was found by Gunn and a neighbor, a man by the name of William Williamson, and then Kelly then takes the mare to Wagonetta, where he stays for four days. So, four days later, on 20 April 1871 while riding back into Greta, he was intercepted by Constable Edward Hall who had suspected that the horse was stolen. So he directed Kelly to the police station on the pretense of having him sign some papers. And as Kelly dismounted the horse, Hall tried to grab him by his scruff to arrest him. So Kelly knocks his arm off of him and he starts resisting arrest. So Hall, he draws his revolver on him and he tries to shoot him. However, his gun misfires three times, which makes 
sense because cap and ball revolvers of this era just weren't really all that reliable. So when this revolver misfired, Kelly, he just overpowers Hall and he's like digging his spurs into his thighs and he's on top of him and he's like beating the snot out of him. And then like seven other guys come out and they pistol whip Kelly and drag him off of Hall and they say like at the end of it, Kelly, his head was just a bleeding mass of raw flesh. So Kelly is dragged into the police station and him and Gunn were charged with horse theft. However, they weren't able to hold him on that charge because they had found out that when the horse was originally borrowed, Kelly was still in Beechwood Jail or Beechwood Prison at this time. However, they didn't believe his story that he did not know that the horse was stolen and they charged him with feloniously receiving a horse, to which Kelly and Gunn were both sentenced to three years of hard labor along with Wright who received 18 months for the illegal use of a horse. Which is kind of a strange crime, but okay, illegal use of a horse, apparently that's a crime. Sounds rather vague though. So Kelly served his sentence at Beechworth Goal and then at Pentridge Prison, and on June 25th, 1873, for his good behavior, he was actually given a transfer to the prison ship Sacramento, which was anchored off Williamstown. So after several months on this prison ship, he was returned to Pentridge and he was released on the 2nd of February 1874, six months early for good behavior. So it was after this when he returns to Greta and short time later his mother had actually married an American named George King who will come up in our story. Of course before we really get into that, Ned he kind of had a score to settle with Wright over this whole chestnut mare affair and he actually challenged him to a bare knuckle boxing match to which Wright agreed to and Kelly pummeled the snot out of him over 20 rounds and won the match. This match took place at the Imperial Hotel in Beechworth on 8 August of 1874 and Kelly, he was actually declared the unofficial boxing champion of the district. And after this boxing match, everything kind of ended on good terms between Wright and Kelly. It said that Wright actually became a supporter and an informant for Kelly later in life. So after all this, Kelly, he's working for a sawmill and then later for a carpenter. And in early 1877, he actually joins up with his stepfather, this American guy named King, who has essentially set up this horse stealing ring along with Wright, a guy named Brickley Williamson, Joe Byrne, Aaron Sherritt, Alan Lowry, and Albert Saxton. These were the guys of this ring. Now, what's a horse theft ring? Well, it's very simple. They were stealing horses. They would alter the brands on the horses. They would resell them as their own horses, and then they would share the profits, and it was all profit. In the modern perspective, we would see it as a car theft ring. You steal a car or a bunch of cars, you take them to a chop shop, you swap out the VIN numbers, you sell them as used cars to anybody that will buy them, and there you go. And this gang was really successful. They go on to steal as many as 280 horses in this operation. Now, members of this gang were also associated and it belonged to what was called the Greta Mob. They were a gang of, quote, bush larkins or bush rangers, and they're essentially a loosely associated organized crime syndicate that probably had their hands in a little bit of everything. So this leads us to 18 September of 1777. So Kelly, he was drunk and riding over this footpath and he was arrested for it. The following day, he was involved in a brawl with four police officers who were escorting him to court. So two of the officers involved were Alex Fitzpatrick, who was a friend of Kelly, and Tom Longingham, who he had alleged 
repeatedly grabbed Kelly by the nuts during the whole squabble. So after this little fight, he was found guilty of being drunk and disorderly, resisting arrest, and assaulting a police officer. He was then fined and released. Now after this, Kelly would go on to complain that Fitzpatrick was harassing his family because of the fact that during the brawl he had knocked him down, and there might be some truth to that, because Fitzpatrick does show up again and again throughout the rest of the story. However, shortly before this whole drunken disorderly brawl went down, back in August of the same year, Kelly, along with his new stepfather, George King, and a number of accomplices, had stolen 11 horses from a paddock owned by James Whitty. He was a wealthy local grazer, and he altered the brands on the horses and sold sits of them to a guy named William Baumgarten who was a horse dealer in Bernawathra near New South Wales border. So on September 26th, kind of after this brawl had taken place, the horses were listed as stolen and the police began to investigate, you know, where did you get these horses from, who sold you these horses, blah blah blah. And this investigation would later lead back to the Kelly gang where an arrest warrant was written in March of 1878 and a further warrant for the arrest of his younger brother Dan was issued on 5th of April for the same incident. So now the police are out and about once again looking for the Kelly gang and George King, his stepfather. However, George King actually disappears from history. A lot of people believe that once they got word of this warrant that he fled. My guess is he most likely fled back to America. He probably washes up in some tavern out in California and we just never hear or see from him again. And this all leads up to the famous Fitzpatrick incident and this kind of is a turning event which leads to the end of Kelly's life. So this warrant is out for Kelly's arrest and other various members of the Kelly family and on 11 April 1878 a constable Strachan who was the officer in charge of the Greta police station he heard that Kelly was at a shearing shed in New South Wales and was given leave to go apprehend him. So while constable Strachan was away Fitzpatrick was ordered to go to to Greta to kind of, you know, be the guy in charge while the other guy's away, right? So while Fitzpatrick's there, he sees a warrant for Ned Kelly's brother Dan, who has a warrant out for horse theft, and he decides he's going to go to the Kelly home and apprehend Dan. And there are two versions of the events of what happens next. Now, I'll start with Fitzpatrick's version, and then I'll go into the Kelly's version, and we all know that the truth will lie somewhere in between. So according to Fitzpatrick, he rides through Winton en route to Greta and he stops at the hotel there where he had, and remember this, he had one brandy and a lemonade according to him. Now as Fitzpatrick arrives at the Kelly's home he sees that Dan isn't there so he starts talking to his mother. So they're just talking there for about an hour killing time and according to Fitzpatrick he heard someone chopping wood so he went out to ensure that the chopping wood was licensed for some reason I guess they regulated that in Australia, but then again it's the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth so they regulate literally everything. I mean hell, I wouldn't be surprised if in Great Britain you had to fill out three forms if you sneezed, but I digress. So he goes out to find this guy cutting wood and the 
woodcutter turns out to be a man named Bricky Williamson, who was a neighbor of theirs, who said that he didn't need a license because he was chopping wood on his own land. You don't need a license for that. So after this petty little license thing is out of the way, he saw two horsemen making towards the Kelly house. Now these men were Dan Kelly and his brother-in-law, Bill Skillion. So Fitzpatrick returns to the house and he says, Dan, I have a warrant for your arrest. And Dan says, well, can I be allowed to have dinner first before you take me in? And the constable, he consents and he stands over him while he's watching him eat this dinner. Now, according to Fitzpatrick, and this is his version of the story, minutes later, Ned Kelly rushed in through the front door and fired a shot at Fitzpatrick with a revolver, missing him. Kelly's mother then hit Fitzpatrick over the head with a fire shovel, and then a struggle ensued, and during this struggle, Kelly fires two more shots, wounding Fitzpatrick just above the left wrist. The, at this time, Skillion and Williamson enter the room, both armed with revolvers, and Dan actually disarmed Fitzpatrick and now had his revolver. After the struggle, Ned tells Fitzpatrick that he didn't know he was him and he wouldn't have fired at him if he had known that he was him. Kelly then compels him to extract the wound from his wrist with his own knife and then Kelly's mother wraps the wound. Now at this time as he's getting his wound dressed, Kelly's telling him, okay this is what you tell your superiors, otherwise things aren't going to be very good for you in the future and after I finish this business with this bomb garden case, I'll reward you greatly if you stick to the story. So Fitzpatrick was then allowed to leave and according to him as he was leaving he found that two horsemen were pursuing him so he gallops and goes back to the Winton Hotel where he's assisted inside by the manager. The two men pursuing him just kind of gallops off into the night and the manager rebandages his wound and gives him brandy and water. Then the manager rides with him to Benalla where he reports the affair to a superior officer. Now that's Fitzpatrick's version of events. There are other versions of events but what I have found when I dig through these other versions is basically this story. So in the alternate version of events, the events from the Kelly side, which I can piece together, Kelly was actually more than 200 miles away from home during this incident. And according to the Kellys, when Fitzpatrick arrived at the Kelly home, he was drunk. And his mother had asked Fitzpatrick if he had a warrant, to which Fitzpatrick replied that he did not have a warrant, but he only had a telegram, to which his mother said, then Dan need not go. And this threw Fitzpatrick into a drunken rage and he pulled out a revolver, held it to her head, and said, I will blow your brains out if you interfere. And she, being a tough old broad, she replied, you would not be so handy with that pop gun of yours if Ned were here. So while this is going on, Dan, he's at the window and he says, there's Ned coming along by the side of the house. And while he was pretending to look out the window for Ned, Dan cornered him and took the revolver and released Fitzpatrick unharmed, just told him, get the hell out of here. And it said while he was learning out the door he had actually banged his wrist on the protruding part of the door lock and that was what he claimed to be a gunshot wound. Other members of the Kelly family say that the gunshot wound was most likely self-inflicted. Now the problem with the Kelly's accounts is they're kind of all over the place and some of them are contradictory. Ned is the only one who says that he was 200 miles away however other people later would come out and say that he was present during the skirmish. But as we know with dual-sided accounts like this, the truth is always somewhere in the middle. My personal opinion states that yeah, he probably was there. However, it is questionable as to who was the aggressor initially in the situation because we have to remember that Fitzpatrick kind of was already having a reputation for harassing this family. Now, this incident does lead to the arrest of Williamson, 
Gillian and Ellen Kelly, and they were arrested and charged with aiding and abetting attempted murder. And the three appeared on October 9, 1878 before Judge Redmond Barry. Now Fitzpatrick's doctor, he was called to the stand and he said that the wounds that he had were consistent with his statement and that he certainly was not drunk at the time of the incident. And even though the defense did try their best, Ellen, Williamson, and Skillian were convicted as accessories to attempted murder. Skillian and Williamson both received sentences of six years, and Ellen received three years of hard labor, and even at the time, that was considered a harsh sentence for her. The press and the people heavily criticized the sentence. They were like, how can you sentence that frail old lady to three years of hard labor? What are you insane? However, the sentence did stick. So after this incident, Ned Kelly, Dan Kelly, and Joe Byrne went into hiding, and they were soon joined by Steve Hart, who was a friend of Dan. While they were in hiding, they had made their camp at a place called Bullock Creek in the Wombat Ranges, and they made money by sluicing gold and distilling whiskey, which to be honest, that personally sounds like a dream to me. I wish I could just pan for gold and drink whiskey and make whiskey all day long. That'd be awesome. And they had this local network of friends and sympathizers and stuff in the area who would give them provisions and stuff. One was Ned's cousin Tom Lloyd. However, while they're hiding up there, the police had received information, probably from a trader, that the Kelly gang were in the Wombat Ranges at the head of the King River, and on 25 October 1878, two mounted police parties were dispatched to go search for them. Now, one of the parties consisted of a Sergeant Michael Kennedy and Constables Michael Scanlon and Thomas Loningen and Thomas McIntyre. They camped overnight at an abandoned mining site at Stringy Bark Creek, about 25 miles north of Mansford, and they were completely unaware that they were only a mile and a half from the gang's hideout, and that Ned had actually come across and had observed their tracks. This would lead to the Stringy Bark Creek police murders. So the next morning, Kennedy and Scanlon went out scouting while McIntyre and Lonigan remained at the camp. About 5 p.m., four members of the Kelly gang emerged from the bush and ordered the two policemen in the camp to bail up and raise their arms. Now, according to McIntyre, each member of the gang was armed with a rifle, but according to Ned, they only had two guns. So, McIntyre was unarmed at the time and raised his arms, and Lonigan, he makes a motion to draw his revolver, and he runs for cover to a tree only a few yards away. However, Ned immediately shoots Lonigan, killing him. So, after this, the Kelly gang, they're questioning McIntyre. They're kind of interrogating him about the police activity in the area. And upon learning that there are two other police officers out there that are making their way back to camp, they go and hide in the woods. So, Kennedy and Scanlon return, and McIntyre walks towards Kennedy, but before he could speak to them, the gang ordered the police to bail up. Kennedy tried to unclip his holster, but the gang had already started firing shots. So, McIntyre advised Kennedy to surrender as he was completely surrounded. Meanwhile, Scanlon dismounted and was shot while trying to unsling his rifle. Now, according to McIntyre, he stated that Scanlon didn't have time to fire a shot, but according to Ned, Scanlon had fired on him and he shot at him as he tried to fire again. So, Kennedy, he dismounts and he dives behind a tree and starts firing, and then he retreats into the bush. Ned and Dan pursued him for almost a mile, exchanging gunfire with them before Ned shot him in the right side. Now, according to Ned, Kennedy then turned around to face him, and Ned shot him in the chest with a shotgun, not realizing that Kennedy had dropped his revolver in an attempt to surrender. Now, during this whole exchange, McIntyre, he mounts Kennedy's horse and he slips away. He reached Mansfield Police Station the following day, and a search party quickly found the bodies of Lonigan and Scanlon. Kennedy's body was found two days later. They had been looted of watches, rings, and other personal items, obviously. Gotta loot the body. 
bodies. Now, the post-mortem examinations of the body showed that Lonigan had been shot three times, once through the arm, once through the leg, and once through the right eye. And then Scanlon had four bullet wounds. Kennedy had at least two bullet wounds and one shotgun wound through the chest fired at very close range. Now, according to the Kelly gang and Kelly himself, he was justified in these killings because the police officers had boasted that they would shoot him without giving him a chance to surrender. And he claimed that the amount of weapons and ammunitions that the police party was carrying indicated their intention of killing him instead of arresting them. He also claimed that these circumstances and the failure of the police to surrender to him when ordered to justified him killing them in self-defense. Now McIntyre, his response to that was that the gang had come in already heavily armed and the guns out and they didn't give them a chance to surrender. Therefore the intention all along was to be the murder of these police officers. Now news of these police murders spread quickly throughout these colonies and on October 28th the government of Victoria announced a reward of 800 pounds, $200 per head for their arrest. This was soon increased to 2,000 pounds on 31 October of 1878 when the Victorian Parliament passed the Felons Apprehension Act. And they were responding to this in this way because this ignited a fear amongst the general populace of these bushrangers, these dangerous outlaws who were out in the bush who could kidnap and rob and steal and whatever. So naturally the government had to react with a hard crackdown and the passing of this felonious apprehension act and by putting a price on the heads of the Kelly gang was their response to this. So the colony gave them until November 12th to surrender themselves and when four of them didn't surrender themselves they were declared as outlaws and as a result of declaring them outlaws the members of the gang could be killed without challenge by anyone finding them armed or if they had reasonable suspicion that they were armed they could go out and kill them you know this is a bounty this is a price on your head you're an outlaw now your refusal to surrender has basically given us carte blanche to take you in by any means necessary dead or alive it would also go on to punish anyone who gave aid shelter or sustenance to the outlaws or withheld information from the authorities regarding the whereabouts of the outlaws now this was the beginning of the end of the kelly gang but it is going to end in a very crazy and awesome and explosive way and we'll get into that in this chapter so after the police killings the kelly gang tried to escape into new south wales by crossing the murray river however the river was flooded at this time and they couldn't make it across so after heading back to their base camp and kind of laying low for a little while they were basically just living off of the charity of their extended family and their sympathizers in the area and being desperate for money they decide they're going to rob the bank in the town of Yorora. so one of the members of the gang burn he scouts the town and he finds out that most of the town is going to be attending this meeting that's taking place on tuesday afternoon so on that monday around 12:30 p.m the gang held up the young husband pastoral substation at faithful creek which is about three and a half miles away from Aurora. they took 14 male employees and passers-by hostage and they held them overnight in a breakout building near the faithful creek's homestead and it's generally believed that some of these hostages were kind of insiders and supporters of the gang sympathizers of the gang who were kind of planted in there so the rest of the hostages would be under control let's put it that way and this was a kind of common thing that these bush rangers would do they would insert these plants into their groups of hostages to not only maintain control but to keep people from 
coming up with the heroic ideas, and to also act as witnesses in any subsequent trial that would be on their side. So they got all these guys hostage, and the next day, Dan guards the hostages while Ned, Byrne, and Hart rode out to cut the telegraph wires which were connecting Aurora to the outside world, which is naturally what you do in this type of situation. You're gonna rob the bank in this small town, so obviously you're gonna cut off all communication coming in and out of that town. So after they cut these telegraph wires, the gang encounters a hunting party and some railway workers, and they held them up and took them back to Faithful's Creek as hostages as well. Now, they're mostly taking these people as hostages because they need these bargaining chips if things go south, and to be honest, they also want witnesses in case things go south. So they come back from cutting the telegraph wires and basically kidnapping these guys. They reunite at Faithful's Creek, and then Ned, Dan, and Hart, they go on into Aurora, leaving Byrne to guard the prisoners. So they make it to Aurora at about 4 p.m., and the three gang members, they knock at the doors of the closed National Bank of Australasia, and they gain entry from both the front and the back. Once they got in, they immediately drew their revolvers, and they held up both the bank and the bank manager's living quarters. They emptied the safes and cashier's drawers of cash and gold worth up to 2,260 pounds, and they were also taking documents and securities and mortgages. Now, a lot of bank robbers would do this because it was seen as staking it to the banks and standing up for the little guy, which is why they had a lot of support and success in their little communities, because if you go into a bank and you get the mortgage papers and you tear them up and destroy them, and now the bank has no evidence that you owe a mortgage, then what's the bank to do when they come knocking at your door for that next payment? And also, by taking, like, securities and bonds and stock certificates and stuff, that stuff is just as good as cash money at the end of the day, and a lot of it is untraceable, especially during this era. A lot of the time during this era, the legal owner of a bond or a stock certificate was just the asshole who was holding it and presenting it to the bank teller or whatever. So they rob this bank and they go into the bank manager's living quarters and they take 14 members of the household staff and household members, like his family I guess, and they take them all back to Faithful's Creek and by this time the hostages now numbered about 37 people. And they continue to hold these hostages until about 8.30 p.m. However, these hostages were, I guess, getting antsy or bored because they end up performing trick writing for these hostages as, I guess, a way to entertain them or break the ice or keep their spirits up or whatever. And then after about 8.30 p.m., the writers go off with Ned Kelly telling them that they were to remain where they were for three hours, otherwise there would be swift reprisals, which meant death. Now, after the bank robbery, after the word gets out, the local police really get criticized in the newspapers for not being able to control this gang. This gang has made the local police look like idiots. And the hostages themselves, they would even go on to say, like, yeah, while they did threaten to kill us if we tried any heroics or did anything stupid, they were actually very hospitable guys. They treated us well. So, following this bank robbery, 58 police were transferred to northeastern Victoria, making it a total of 217 police officers in the district, and around 50 soldiers were deployed to guard banks in the region. So basically, the government has cracked down, and they're really going all out to find these guys. It's like when you get that fifth star in Grand Theft Auto, you know you only have a little bit of time left before you're eventually taken down. And at this point, the reward for just Ned Kelly's capture alone was up to a thousand pounds. And I'm guessing that's British pounds. I'm guessing the dollary dude didn't exist yet. Then again, I wouldn't mind having a thousand Australian dollary dues. 
lose, I think that's like, I don't know, like 795 freedom eagles or something like that. But I'm off on a tangent now. This was a big reward. So in the coming days and weeks after this bank robbery, they are actually in dire straits for more money because they had actually given out a bunch of this money to the people who sympathize with them and helped them during that first bank robbery. And they were basically broke again. So in order to remedy this, they decide to rob a bank in the New South Wales town of Geraldiri. And in the days before the raid, they had actually sent a bunch of supporters and sympathizers into the town to basically gather intelligence. Which says a lot about the actual intelligence of the gang. They weren't just running into these places half-cocked. They were treating these like military missions almost. They were sending in spies to really gather intelligence on the towns and the bank. And they were planning this stuff very carefully and more importantly, they were winning the hearts and minds of the citizenry so the police and the military really had their work cut out for them. And this is most likely why the guy became such a legendary figure. It's one thing just to rob some banks and steal some horses, but in this calculating method, he could have been up there with some of the greatest generals in history if he had applied his trade towards the military. Now to be honest, that's my personal opinion, but I'm gonna stick with it. So here's what happens. On Friday, February 7th, 1879, the Kelly gang crosses the Murray River and camps overnight in the forest. The following day, they visit Davidson's Inn about two miles from Geraldiri, where they drank and chatted with patrons and staff, learning more about the town and the police presence there. So not only are they making friends, they're gathering intelligence. So on Sunday the 9th of February, just after midnight, the gang went to the Geraldiri police barracks about a half mile from the town center on the pretext of alerting the police to a fictitious brawl at Davidson Inn. It's a distraction. So they get to the police station and they realize that there's only two policemen present, a senior constable George Devine and a probationary constable by the name of Henry Richards. So the gang drew their revolvers and bailed up the policemen. They secured the policemen in the lockup near the main building and spent the night in the residential quarters of the police station where they held Devine's wife and kids hostage. So throughout the morning of Sunday, while the population was at church, Byrne and Hart dressed in police uniforms and took the disarmed Constable Richards with them into town so they could familiarize themselves with its layout. So it's basically blending and reconnaissance. Good move. And even further, they told Richards to introduce any strangers they might encounter as police reinforcements in town to search for the Kelly gang. They then returned to the police barracks and finalized their plans for the following raid, which would take place the next day. So basically at this point, these guys have control of the local police force. So the next day at 10 a.m., Kelly and Byrne donned police uniforms and the four outlaws took Richards with them in the town. Now they had left Devine and the police locked up and had warned his wife that if she tried to leave the barracks, they would burn it down with her and her children inside. So they had complete control of this situation. So the gang goes down Main Street and they go right into the Royal Mail Hotel, which was right next door to the Bank of New South Wales, and they held the place up. They take the staff hostage, they take the patrons hostage, and they pretty much take anybody who's walking by hostage. And obviously, per their MO, they did have sympathizers and supporters within those hostage groups because they were the ones who were going to basically maintain control of the situation. So Ned and Byrne, they enter the bank from the rear while Dan and Hart took control of the hotel. Now this time, Ned and Byrne, while holding up the bank, they took 2,141 pounds in cash as well as jewelry and other valuables. They also took deeds and mortgages and security 
securities from the safe, which he later burned, which he does for the reason of, and this is a direct quote, the bloody banks are crushing the life's blood out of the poor struggling man. And it kind of generates this idea of this noble Robin Hood type figure who's taken on the banks and given the middle finger to the banks because the banks are crushing the little man. And he's standing up against this tyranny, which to be honest is just a good image to cultivate for yourself. Sure, the banks and the establishment and the aristocracy might hate you, but, but to be honest, who gives a fuck about their opinion? It's the opinion of the common man that matters. And during this robbery, the bank staff and a lot of the patrons who were in there were taken over to the parlor of the hotel to be held as additional hostages. Nets burn, he goes over to the post office and he destroys the telegraph machine. They then order a lot of the hostages to take axes and go out and bring down the telegraph poles and wires. So after they cut down the telegraph wires, Ned actually takes two hostages over to the newspaper owner's home where he asks for copies of his now famous Gerald Deary letter to be printed. However, the newspaper owner wasn't there. He escaped the capture and fled the town. However, his famous Gerald Deary letter is published and it basically reads like this Republican manifesto. He lists out his ideals and his grievances against the police and the banking system and the system of, I guess, Australia. He essentially tells his side of his stories in these incidents and why the police are harassing him and all this other stuff. And if you want to read that manifesto, it is online. And you can also, if you're in Australia, I guess you can actually go see it in one of their museums. I'm not really sure which museum it's in, but I guarantee you it's there. He then goes back to the hotel where he delivers a speech to the hostages, basically outlining what his Gerald E. letter is about with all his grievances with the police and his side of the stories and stuff. And then he tells them that they're free to go. However, he took Richards and the two post office workers who knew how to use and work on the telegraph back to the police barracks and locked them up before leaving town. Which is a smart move when you really think about it because in the era where the telegraph was the fastest means of communication, imprisoning the only two guys in town who know how to operate it just guarantees that you'll be able to escape. So after all this chaos and craziness, they leave town and when Kelly and Hart left town, they were not seen again for another 17 months. So in response to this raid, New South Wales government and several banks collectively issued 4,000 pounds for the gang's capture and then the Victorian government matched that offer, bringing the total amount to 8,000 pounds for the capture of these guys dead or alive, which was the largest bushranger bounty ever. So throughout basically all of 1879, the police and the military and pretty much everybody was looking for this gang. And they would get like false leads and all these sightings all over the place and they just couldn't capture these guys. And in the meantime, the Kelly gang, they were out in the bush hiding and planning their next raid. This is where it would become infamous because while they're planning this raid, the Kelly gang was making bullet resistant armor out of agricultural equipment and like random scraps of metal or whatever that they were finding. They were actually blacksmithing their own armor. However, before their final raid and their final strand, they had some business to take care of and this was business dealing with a man named Aaron Sherritt. Now, during the time the Kelly gang was on the run, the police were having these watch parties monitoring the houses of relatives of the gang just to see if they would show up at any of these houses. And one of these houses was of Burns' mother in Woolshed Valley 
Valley near Beechworth, and the police used the house of her neighbor named Aaron Sherritt, who was a former Greta Mob member and lifelong friend of Berm, as a base of operations. And they were basically paying him and gathering any information they could on the Kelly gang and their whereabouts. Now, in March of 1879, Burns' mother, the neighbor, she discovered Sherritt with a police surveillance party and publicly denounced him as a spy. And in the following months, Burn and Ned sent Sherritt messages stating that the Lloyds and the Quins wanted him shot and it would be better for him if he had joined the outlaws. So Sherritt basically ignores the gang's threats and the gang decides that they're gonna go murder Sherritt. So on 26 June 1880, Dan and Burn rode into the Woolshed Valley and that evening they kidnapped a man named Antim Wick who lived near Sherritt and forced him to come with them to Sherritt's hut, which was currently being occupied by Sherritt himself, his pregnant wife Ellen, Mrs. Barry, Ellen's mother, and four policemen who had been stationed in the hut to guard Sherritt and spy on the Burns' home. So at about 6.30 p.m., Dan went to the front door of the hut while Byrne forced Wick to knock on the back door and call out for Sherritt. And when Sherritt answered the door, Byrne shot him in the throat and chest with a shotgun, instantly killing him. So Byrne and Dan entered the hut while the police were hiding in the bedroom. And then Byrne hears the police scrambling for their guns and he demands they come out of the room. He then sent Ellen into the bedroom to bring the police out, but they held her in the room. So with the police refusing to come out, the outlaws, they exit the hut and they start gathering up kindling and firewood and piling around the hut and they threatened to burn the hut down with everybody in it unless they were to come out. But they refuse, so they decide, okay, we're gonna set fire to the hut. However, the hut refuses to take light. So they basically stand outside shouting threats at the occupants of this place, trying to coerce them to come out, but they never do. And after about two hours of this, they eventually just give up and ride away. I mean, they had killed the guy, their mission was accomplished, so they basically gave up. However, they had the police so scared and pissing themselves that they didn't leave the hut until the following morning because they were afraid that as soon as they stepped out of there, they were going to get shot. So after this incident, the gang estimated that the policemen inside Sherritt's hut would relay the news of his murder to Beechworth by early Sunday morning, prompting a special police train to be sent up from Melbourne. And in anticipation of this police train, they decided to damage the tracks, and they actually kidnapped some railroad workers to damage these tracks around a sharp bend, which would send the train careening into this deep gully. So the gang decided that they were going to kill all the officers on this train, and then go into Benalla, where they would rob banks, set fire to the courthouse, blow up the police barracks, release anyone in prison in the goal, and generally play havoc with the entire town before returning to the bush. They were going to go out with a bang. So in anticipation for all this, the Burn and Dan, they arrive in Glenrowan, and the gang take over a railway station, the station master's home, and Ann Jones's Glenrowan Inn, which was opposite from the railway station and about a mile from the town center. Now, throughout the night, they're basically taking hostage anybody that passes by. And the other hotel in town, which was right across the tracks, that was being used to stable the horses, which carried a tin of blasting powder and suits of bullet-repelling armor that they had made out in the bush. The armor was designed to provide protection for the outlaws as they stood 
stood on top of an embankment, firing down on any survivors from this upcoming train wreck. However, there was no leg armor as it would hinder the outlaw's movement and wasn't really necessary, so it was basically the torso and helmet. So by Sunday afternoon, the expected train still had not arrived and the outlaws moved most of the hostages into Glen Rowan Inn and there were about 60 of them. And as the hours passed by without any sight of the train, the gang plied the hostages with drink and organized music and singing and dancing and games. And the hostages went on to say that they actually treated us quite well, once again winning the hearts and minds of the common man, which was kind of their MO. So it's getting on to the late afternoon and early evening and Ned actually allowed 21 of the hostages who he considered trustworthy to leave. And about 10 p.m. he and Byrne, they end up capturing Glenn Rowan's lone constable, a man named Hugh Bracknon. And they're basically just still sitting there waiting for this train to come. However, this train doesn't come until 2 a.m. on Monday. And this train carried seven regular troopers under Superintendent Hare, five Queensland Aboriginal troopers under Sub-Inspector O'Connor, and several other civilians who were probably just there to watch. Now, they already had intelligence that the tracks had been tampered with, and they actually sent out a pilot train to find this damage, and they find it, and they advise the train of the danger ahead. So the Kelly gang's grand plan of disabling this train and killing all aboard is no longer feasible. So it's getting late into the evening or early into the morning, and Kelly decides to let the hostages return home, and he was delivering them a lecture about police informers when Byrne came in from outside with news that a train had arrived. So at this time, the outlaws don their armor and they prepare for a confrontation. So the hostages were told to lay low and they make an escape towards the railway station while the officers prepare for this assault. So Superintendent Hare, he immediately leads a detachment of police towards the hotel while the main body of troopers prepared horses and equipment just after 3 a.m. Now the four outlaws, they position themselves in the shadow of the veranda in front of the hotel and opened fire when the police were about 30 yards away in the moonlight. The police returned fire and about 100 to 150 shots were fired within 15 minutes. Now after about 15 minutes of this, someone shouted, cease fire, there are women and children in the building, and there was a lull in the shooting. They may have all been killers, but they weren't monsters. So at this time, Superintendent Hare was wounded in the left wrist and had to return to Benalla for treatment. Ned was wounded in the left hand and arm and in his right foot. Byrne was shot in the leg and retreated into the hotel, and two of the hostages were fatally wounded by police fire through the thin weatherboard walls of the building. 13-year-old John Jones and a railway worker named Martin Cherry were both killed in the siege. A third hostage was also fatally wounded. His name was George Metcalf. However, it's not sure whether he was wounded by police fire or by the Kelly's fire. Now, during this lull in firing, a number of hostages, mostly women and children, were able to escape from the hotel. Now, Kelly, bleeding heavily from his wounds, retreated behind the hotel and made his way into the bush where police found his skull cap and rifle at around 3.30 a.m., about 100 yards from the hotel. Kelly would go on to later state that he was in the bushes, not very far from the police, like he could reach out and touch them. So throughout the rest of the early morning, the police surround the hotel and they continue firing intermittently back and forth. At about 5 a.m., Byrne was fatally shot in the groin while making a toast to the Kelly gang in the bar. And frankly, I can't think of a more horrific death than being shot anywhere near the nuts. That had to have been painful. 
However, between 5.30 and 7 a.m., police reinforcements under Sergeant Steele and Superintendent Sadler arrived from Wangaratta and Benella, which took the police contingent to about 40 men. Which just gives more weight to how hardcore these guys were. These were four men, and it's taking 40 police officers to take these guys down. Now, this takes us into the chapter, which I like to call Kelly's Last Stand. It's right before he's captured. It's his last great hurrah. So while seriously wounded, Kelly lay in the bush for most of the rest of the morning and at dawn, which was about 7am, dressed in his armor and armed with three handguns, he came out of the bush and attacked the police from the rear. And you have to imagine what this must have looked like because it's dawn and that morning dew is kind of melting away and the steam is rising and out of that steam emerges this figure who's dressed in this suit of armor who looks like the Black Knight from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And he has this reputation of basically being unkillable. It must have been an absolutely insane sight to see and I guarantee you some of those officers probably pissed themselves when they saw this. It's like watching Darth Vader slowly emerge towards you while the music booms and the lightsaber starts turning red. So as Kelly emerges he opens fire and as he's moving towards the hotel staggering from his injuries the weight of his armor and the impact of the bullet from the police officers on his iron plate, which he later described as like blows from a man's fist, eventually cause him to struggle firing and reloading his weapons and causes him to collapse. So at the same time, Dan and Hart are providing suppressing fire from the hotel intermittently. However, it's Steele who brought down Ned with two shotgun blasts to his unprotected legs and thighs. Ned was then disarmed and carried away to the railway station where a doctor attended to his injuries. He was later found to have more than 28 wounds, including serious gunshot wounds to his left elbow and right foot, and multiple less serious gunshot wounds, as well as cuts and abrasions from his armor and the brush. And this dude was still alive. He was truly a strong, badass dude. I think this guy could give Teddy Roosevelt for his money, and Teddy Roosevelt was literally shot in the chest and then gave a long-winded 90-minute speech. But to this very day, there is a monument that marks the spot where Kelly was captured. It's like this stone with a plaque on it, which just gives weight to how significant of a historical figure this man was. So it's around 10 a.m. when the ceasefire was finally called and the last 30 hostages left the hotel. But Dan and Hart, they were not going to give up without a fight. They continued standing their ground. They were gonna die rather than be captured at this point. Point. Now, they were no longer firing, they had agreed to the ceasefire, but they were refusing to come out of this hotel, and Sadler, he was unwilling to allow his men to storm the hotel out of fear that they would be picked off and killed, so he ordered a cannon to be sent to blast out the outlaws, but then he decided instead to burn them out. So at 2.50pm, Senior Constable Charles Johnson, supported by covering fire from the police, set fire to the Glen Rowan Inn. Now, the intention here isn't really to kill these guys, it's to set fire to the building to force them to come out. Kind of like what those guys did when they tried to capture John Wilkes Booth, who turned out to actually not be John Wilkes Booth, but go check out that episode. However, Dan and Hart never escaped the building. Now, the circumstances of Dan and Hart's death remain a mystery. 
personally, I think when they were faced with this situation and they were going to be burned out, I personally think they committed suicide. Now the fire eventually burns out by 4pm and they collect the bodies and they do autopsies and they obviously see where Burn had died from bleeding out from this wound. However, they could never really find the cause of death for Dan and Burn, which, like I said, I personally believe was suicide. But this was basically it for the Kelly gang. Dan, Hart, and Burn were killed and, and the infamous legend himself, Ned, he was captured. So Kelly survives his wounds and he stands trial on 19 October 1880 in Melbourne before Sir Redmond Barry, the very judge who had earlier sentenced his mother to three years in prison for the attempted murder of Fitzpatrick. So he was presented on the charge of murdering Constables Lonigan and Scanlon but was never charged with the murder of Sergeant Kennedy. Now the trial had only proceeded until 28 of October and the prosecution didn't even proceed with the charge of Scanlon's murder. They really only charged him with Lonigan's murder. Most likely because of the multiple conflicting accounts which came out of that incident. So Kelly was convicted of the willful murder of Lonigan and sentenced to death by hanging. And handing down the sentence, Barry concluded with the customary words, May God have mercy on your soul? To which Kelly replied like a badass, I will go a little further than that and say I will see you there where I go. And for those at the back of the class who don't understand the humor behind that, he's literally saying I will see you in hell. Which gets even funnier because Judge Barry, he died of natural causes only 12 days after Kelly's execution. So I guess he did see him in hell and he didn't have to wait very long. So it's on the 3rd of November when the Executive Council of Victoria decided that Kelly was to be hanged eight days later on 11 November at the Old Melbourne Goal. In the week leading up to the execution, thousands turned out at street rallies across Melbourne demanding a reprieve for Kelly. And on November 8th, a petition for clemency with over 32,000 signatures was presented to the governor's private secretary. However, the Executive Council announced it soon after that the hanging would proceed is scheduled. And the reason why he has all these supporters is just because he had won the hearts and minds of the people. He was not this bloodthirsty beast that the media and the police were making him out to be. He was fighting for the little man. He was fighting against police corruption and giving a middle finger to this corrupt and broken system that had left him as an outlaw. He was sticking it to the banks. He was standing up to the police. He was saying, I'm not going to live by your rules. Especially when the way you do things is corrupted by your own self-interest. And that kind of message will always resonate with the people against the aristocracy and no matter what nation or civilization you live in, the common man always sticks together against those assholes who control everything. So on November 10th, the day before his execution, Kelly had his portrait taken as a keepsake for his family and he was granted farewell interviews with relatives and one newspaper reported that his mother's last words to him were, mind you die like a Kelly, which I guess means either as a martyr or rebellious to the end, either way it's kind of a badass thing to say. So the following morning, John Castillo, the governor of the goal, informed Kelly that the hour of execution had been fixed at 10 a.m. And by 9 a.m. his leg irons were removed and he was led out by the warders accompanied by the chaplain. And when passing the Gold's Garden, he commented on the beauty of the flowers, which I would guess he would do in your last moments of life. Because it's really in those 
last minutes of life when your mind is racing that you kind of stop to appreciate the beauty of everything in life, especially something like a flower. Now, accounts do differ as to what his last words were. A lot of people believe that he said, such is life. Some people believe that he said, ah, it has come to this. However, the one that I believe is the one that's probably most likely true, and I'll tell you why afterwards. When the rope was placed around his neck, he was told to say his last words, and the warden later wrote that Kelly, when prompted to say his last words, mumbled something indiscernible. And I personally think this one is true because think about it, in those last very moments of life, you know you are going to die. You know within five minutes you are going to be dead. Those last racing thoughts through your brain wondering what awaits you after death. I would imagine that that is probably quite paralyzing if you are not ready for it mentally. We all have these visions of these grand last speeches right before execution, but more often than not, it's usually a bunch of indecipherable mumbling, or sometimes it's just plain silence. I can't imagine anyone, no matter how much of a badass you are, would be able to come up with anything comprehensible as your last words, as that noose is around your neck and that drop is about to happen. Now, I really don't like to diminish these legendary figures as saying that, yeah, he went out mumbling something indecipherable because he was facing death and he probably locked up. To be honest, I think by mumbling something indiscernible really reminds us of the fact that this guy was a human. He was a man. He had real concerns, real fears, real feelings. And on that day, he was more than just a bloodthirsty rogue or a martyr for a great cause. He was a man who was facing death and did not know what awaited him on the other side and I think that makes him very, very human and we have to remember that this legendary figure was very human. So in his final act, that trapdoor opened, he drops to his death and Ned Kelly was no more. However, his legend, his story will live on forever because he is right up there with some of the most badass, awesome men in history. This man's life story is really no different than some of the life stories of some of the most badass western outlaws here in 19th century America. And I am actually shocked that here in the United States where I live that Hollywood hasn't produced like 200 films about this guy's life. Because when I read this guy's life story, I couldn't imagine why it was not up there on the silver screen in Hollywood. Like, screw Marvel's whatever new movie they're coming out with. I want to see an old school Australian, I guess Western, about the Kelly gang because that would be an epic film. And even the other members of this Kelly gang, Dan and Burn and Hart, these guys were badasses. I mean, could you imagine just four guys taking over an entire town today and taking half the town hostage and they still say, oh, these guys were great guys? It's no wonder these guys ended up as legendary figures. And these are the kind of stories I love. Stories about real humans, real men who become legendary figures through their feats. And to be honest, before this idea was submitted to me, I really had no idea who Ned Kelly was. I mean, yeah, I had a general idea that he was this Australian dude who robbed banks and dressed in a suit of armor, but that was all I knew. But when I read his life story, I was amazed. And that 
that is why I love doing this show. It is always a new learning experience for me, and I just absolutely am addicted to it. And the fact that you guys are still listening to it and providing an audience for this content is just the icing on the cake. But with that, I will end it here. I do truly thank each and every one of you for listening to this show. And it's without your support that I probably wouldn't even be doing this. I'd probably be doing some dumbass podcast about financial management or something. I definitely wouldn't be sitting here drinking delicious Voodoo Ranger IPA and learning about all these great historical figures that I just love learning about. But if you do like it, like always, I just ask that maybe you tell a friend about this show. Maybe show them the QR code or share it or however you want. We're pretty much on like every single platform, even platforms that I don't even know about. Like I saw some platform called CastBots. I have no idea what that is. So the 6% of people who listen to me on that, hey, thanks. And as always, if you want to, you can hit that support this podcast link down on that Spotify link and send me a little bit of money. You guys really have no idea how far that goes. It really helps out in upgrading equipment, upgrading the like sound proofing in this room or whatever and just generally making me a little less anxious about money so I can do this more and more but I'm rambling now I have a ton of editing to do on this episode so I will see you in the next one Mm